Welcome back, everyone. This is Tom Parrish, and I'm here with Brom Desmond, CEO of Flanders Scientific, located in Alpharetta, Georgia. Correct. We just moved from Swanee to Alpharetta. Great. Our conversation today has to do with a question every colorist, and editor, and media producer eventually has to ask themselves. When should I spend money on a reference monitor? And what is a reference monitor? The other thing I wanted to cover in the podcast was, for those who may already have a Flanders, many of us do, and we're all very lucky to have one, what's up for 2014? Because the display technology market seems to really be cooking along in a lot of new directions. And there are new trends in the display calibration area that we want to talk about during this interview. Sure. All right, so let's get started. One of the things that I find really fascinating about FSI is that it's a family-owned business. So one of the advantages I think we've all appreciated about FSI is that you can reach out and speak to someone there directly who actually knows about the product, a place where you can get personalized support, send your monitor back for calibration anytime you want, and the design and evolution of new products, all coming from this one location. And if I understand correctly, the manufacturing, though, is done in China. Is that correct? We do our manufacturing in Shenzhen. It's uh, not far outside of Hong Kong. And it's, it's actually where um, our factory is literally just a few miles away from where a lot of the uh, Apple products are made as well. So it, it's kind of the, become the manufacturing hub of the world for these high-tech products. And uh, that, that's where we do all our manufacturing. Do you actually do any final assembly in the States or is there? Uh, not really final assembly. QA. We do stock all uh, uh, spare parts here. All repairs are done out of either this facility here in Alpharetta or our facility in uh, in Belgium. Uh, we have a service facility for Europe as well. But uh, all repairs are there. Nothing ever goes back to the factory for repair, so to speak. Then uh, we also do all calibration here. So that, that's another important aspect of, uh, of, of that kind of puzzle is that um, we get the products here from the factory. We do our own QA here, in additional to the uh, uh, quality control efforts that they do at the factory. And then we do all the calibration. We actually calibrate every individual unit before it ships out. So what we have here is mostly uh, most of our, our guys are, are busy doing uh, the calibration and the quality assurance. That's good. That's good. I come from the manufacturing environment myself, and you actually have two points of QA there, one yeah, assembly, and then one when it gets over here, and it's a great, absolutely. great way to capture problems in uh, part runs and stuff like that. Absolutely, absolutely, and when, you know the, the the products undergo a, a burn in period at the factory, and then they go mm -hmm. undergo a burn in period here, um, and it really amounts to uh, several days of the units running uh, with various content and being checked and rechecked and then calibrated and checked, and so there's a, there's a lot of uh, quality assurance that goes on before the product ever leaves uh, to the customer. Great. Burn in. Well, okay. Well, let's get going here. Brom, thank you so much for being on the show. I know you're super busy schedule these days. Yeah, we, we like to keep busy around here. I appreciate you having us. <laughs> hey, um, I'm just curious. I know that you started this business with your dad, I believe, back in 2005. Correct. What would your dad think now of this business with OLEDs and, and you know all the things that are changing in the industry? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he would have loved it at the same time. Um, my dad was actually an old Barco guy. He was one of the yeah. first three three employees for Barco in the United States and uh, worked him, worked his way up from basically being their lead service guy to uh, being their sales manager uh, before going on to some other ventures. But um, he was really a big CRT fan. So it was always amusing. We, we'd sit around the office and he'd uh, tell me why a CRT was so great. And I was younger and of course, uh, 
look down on CRTs. And so we'd argue about the benefits of LCD and CRTs. And um, OLED would have been another very interesting topic. I'm sure he, he passed away before that really caught on. But mm-hmm. um, I'm sure he would have had some strong opinions on it. But uh, but it was always great fun. I mean, th- my dad was really a, a display guy um, who really understood this. He actually had a technical degree um, um, from, from a, a university in Ghent in Belgium. And um, his specialty uh, was actually color television. So mm. he was one of the few guys wow. that I met who, who actually went to school for that. And I think one of his final projects was building a CRT from the ground up. So he really had an appreciation for, for how they worked. And um, he was always the analog guy. When I had questions about analog, I'd bounce it off of him. And uh, the digital stuff was more my domain. I can only imagine your, your first questions. Dad, explain to me gamma again, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he had some he had some great stories, and he actually sat on some. Um, I think like uh, was it SEMTI boards where they mm-hmm. would come up with uh, specifications for luminance and and all these other things. And so he he had some strong opinions on that stuff and some really great stories and. I certainly don't envy uh, people who have to sell CRTs, though. Uh, I mean, those things are oh, <laughs> so heavy. <laughs> we have a couple around here that we keep for reference purposes. And it's like, okay, let's get all four guys together so we can move this thing around. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, even the commercial sets were like that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, with regards to trends, before we get into the uh, why and when buy kind of thing, this is a preliminary mm-hmm. question. You know, as a colorist, I've seen a huge change myself in the last five years. Uh, as undoubtedly you have too. And I'm not just talking about hardware. I'm talking about things like DaVinci Resolve releasing a free light version and Adobe yeah. now includes speed grade. And the whole point of that is that the the color grading, color correction phase in the digital workflow is could essentially be thought of as free, although you have to have some talent and experience to know what you're doing. But you don't need a $100,000 room just to put all the gear in. Yeah, And so that's all really changed in the last uh, uh, very short period of time, maybe 36 months and 24 in, the, in a big way. Yeah. Um, and from that, I think there's a greater awareness of color. And, and then to me, it seems like once there's a greater awareness of that, then it's like, oh, yeah, so that really does play into production quality. And now that we're competing at a higher level, what does that mean? So I'm curious, what kind of trends are you seeing in I'm going to call it media production industry because it's not just TV. It's not just broadcast, yeah. right? Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, what, what we've seen and what has actually worked really well for us is um, that we see a lot of these people who used to work at large facilities. So that that's one part of the business is that they used to work at these facilities where you did have, you know, the million dollar rooms, right? Um, and these people, because of the way the industry has changed, a lot of them have gone freelance. We have guys who used to be, you know, colorists at high-end facilities who now are working out of basically their basement, mm-hmm. but with high-end equipment and and, and really high quality equipment doing high quality work. Mm-hmm. And that really was our bread and butter when we started. It was the in, independent yeah. people who have to be careful with their money. And, and um, like I said, a lot of the software is, is free or close to free. Uh, and the hardware costs have come down significantly. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it used to be, you know, $25,000, $30,000 for a top end um, broadcast monitor. And you can still get them at that price. But you don't have to go there anymore. And so we've really seen a, a change and we've seen a lot more people come into it. And then the other thing that I think has happened is people have taken on a lot more roles. So um, 
you know, there, you know, I know a lot of editors who are now colorists as well, and maybe it's not primarily what they oh, do, but it's it's becoming rarer, uh, in my opinion, anyway, to find someone who's just an editor. Uh, everybody who I know who's editing also seems to be doing color correction. Why not? You know, it's if the software is next to free, why why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you add that to your personal tool set to be able to do those things? Yeah. Okay. Well, good. Cause that's yeah. sort of like two ends of the line coming together. And that's exactly what I'm seeing and hearing. And, and when I talk with other people in the industry, so it's great to get it from your perspective. Let's go for the big question here. When and why should a media creator, we'll call them media creators, buy, buy a reference monitor? I know you've been asked this a jillion times. In fact, I think I probably asked you that four years ago when I bought my monitor and um, and this would be a great chance to either you know say that update that as necessary and let's let's dig in there. Well, you know, when people ask me that, what I usually tell them is, look, if you're getting paid to do color correction, if you're getting paid to do professional editing, whatever the delivery medium is, um, then you should probably invest in the professional hardware. Now, if you're just trying to learn editing, if you're just trying to learn color correction, and you're not getting paid by clients. I'm not that person who's who's going to come to you and say you have to have a professional monitor to even to learn this stuff. You, you really don't. You, you you can you can do the basics. You can learn the basics of editing. You can learn the basics of color correction without having to invest in a very expensive broadcast monitor. Um, that being said, I think once once you make that jump to saying, hey, I'm going to charge for these services, um, you owe it uh, not only to your customer but to yourself to have something that's professional grade that you know is set up correctly and that you know is going to show you issues that may be present in your content. Um, and, and that's really the defining line for me. Um, I know some people have other opinions on it, but I think it, if you're charging, you should be using professional equipment. So, you know, I want to add on to that now to my own experience. Actually, in this last 12 months or so, I've, you know, you mentioned editors. And I could hear an editor saying, well, yeah, you know, but I, I just edit, and I work with a guy in Houston on a film, as a matter of fact, and that's what he does, and he does that well. But he came to me recently, and he said, because we're all on red files, and he said, couldn't you just send me a LUT uh, for this last change instead of sending me this huge, you know, four gigabyte uh, file that needed to be updated? Because the yeah. end result undeliverable was, was uh, ProRes 422. And I said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, if you know how to do that in, in Premiere, which he did, he did it before with someone else. Problem is, there's always some slight differences. You know, even though you're transferring the LUT that looks right on your machine, could look different over there, and then you start tweaking it. Uh, the, yeah. uh, the filmmaker comes in and goes, well, it looks different than it did on Tom's. And um, so having a reference monitor um, makes a big difference. And and the same with regards to filmmakers, really. You're mm -hmm. spending two, yeah. three, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000 I don't know. You know, you're spending a significant amount of money on a, on a, on a, on a narrative. Get yourself a good reference monitor. Because yeah, yeah. Um, I could count the number. I mean, it's the number of times I've had a filmmaker come back because he doesn't like the way it looks at home, no matter how many times I've explained it. Yeah. What he would have he bought a monitor by now. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Anyway, that's just sort of my. So no, absolutely, and it, it, it's kind of kind of amusing sometimes. And we have people who call us, and uh, no, no joke, who say, "Hey, I just, you know, we bought an Epic and we're doing this short, or we bought an F55 and we're doing this short, and 
Um, they're like, we, we only have, you know, we don't really have $5,000 to spend on a broadcast monitor. I'm like, wait a minute, how much did you spend on the camera? You know, and how much are your lenses? And it, it, it's, it sometimes surprises me how, how much the display device has become an afterthought in an industry that's all about seeing things. And, mm -hmm. uh, it, it, it's, um, it's one of those things where I just think it's, you know, obviously I'm biased as a display manufacturer, but I always tell people it's the wrong place to save yeah. money. Um, yeah. You don't have to spend $30,000, but get yourself into something high quality that's reference grade just so you have the peace of mind. I mean, I see all these people struggling online in forums trying to get, you know, computer monitors to work and then they run into issues and it's just like, you know, what what is that peace of mind worth to you to just spend a little bit more and get something that you know is correct and that you know is going to show you the issues. Yeah. Well, I was at a, uh, another editor's uh, location when I'm not grading, I'm doing display calibration. And yeah. he, he uh, I'd made an offer because we had similar problems. Great guy. So let me help you out. I'll come over and I'll, I'll, I'll calibrate the displays. He says, it'll be great. I've got two, um, I don't know if it's two Samsung. There were two monitors he'd, he had bought that were, they were not the $200 brand, but they were, they were yeah. maybe the, five or six hundred dollar brand or something i don't remember now offhand and they said they're the same you know well they were the same model but you could tell they were manufactured at completely different times they had different firmware in them they yeah. would not calibrate anywhere near the same you know and and there yeah. was really no calibration other than a little bit of adjusting of the red green and blue and gamma i mean it was it, yeah uh, uh, i can't remember what else but I mean, it was not a, not even a two-point you know it was it was just yeah your typical low-end thing and and i think it's no wonder you're having so much trouble you know i mean you, you know um so uh, yeah, so my next question is does size matter and my reason yeah. for asking that is uh <laughs> is that um what are you seeing with the color colorists? I mean, with regards to having two monitors now, because I know for myself, I have the twenty-four inch. I guess that's the twenty-four inch. Yeah, the Allen yeah. twenty-four. And you know, it gets a little crowded with uh, someone in the room with you here. Yeah. And there's plenty of room in the room, but you know, he's like breathing over your shoulder, and and I'm seeing. Yeah. Well, you know, are you seeing a trend toward guys uh, maybe having a second monitor, a little bit larger? You know, but it's the same the reference monitor that they're seeing is the same one that you're using, kind of thing. Yeah, we, we see a, a number of different um, solutions mm -hmm. uh, to kind of this this question, um, and there there's a couple schools of thought, and really a lot of it has to do with what your deliverable is. Um, I think if, again, if you're if you're delivering for web and um, sometimes for for television and things like that. Um, there's, you're probably good with something like a 24 inch monitor. Um, what we see though, is that, you know, we've seen this kind of reversal in the trend of having both a client monitor and a hero monitor or color sure, grading monitor. Yeah. We're seeing people start to use some larger monitors. They'll use a 32 or 50 inch monitor and they'll have that be the only monitor, uh, especially in, in color correction applications. Right. We see that that's become real popular because now you don't have this discussion of, you know, I really like the way it looks on the big monitor in this shot, but in the next shot, I like the way it looks on the small monitor. And, you know, they're both calibrated, but, you know, if you have different display technologies and even just size, you know, just the different sizes will strike your eye perceptually different. You said um, you, you ran a test one time, I think, there at the factory. You kind of mm -hmm. a blind test. You had like a 50 inch and a 24 inch, and you ask everyone, you know, what what did they see in the way of differences? And you knew they were perfectly calibrated the same. Yeah, well, you know that that's where you get into differences in technologies, where you can have, 
you know, you can spend $30,000 on a, on a very high end spectro and you can make them match perfectly and you'll still see visible differences. Yeah. Some of that's due to size. Some of that can be due to differences in the technology. And so what a lot of people have tried to do is uh, they've moved to, again, in, in those environments is just a single monitor, a large reference. And um, so that works. And then on the other, fl on the flip side, you know, a lot of times people try to save money and go with smaller monitors and, um, we make some, for example, high-quality 17-inch monitors, and they're color accurate. But what I find on those is once you get up below about you know, 19, 20 inches, in my opinion, mm -hmm. it gets hard to judge things like noise, especially when you're going to have something that's blown up and seen on a 50-inch screen. Um, and so for judging noise, I really usually recommend at least 23, 24-inch monitor. Um, I think you can see it at a normal viewing distance there. You get much smaller than that, and it becomes real easy to miss that stuff, and it becomes very apparent when you blow it up on that, you know, big sixty-five inch home television. <laughs> so, yeah, it's yeah. I mean, I, I never have been a particular fan of ha having a plasma screen. I know that runs against the grain for a lot of the guys, but it's like they set up differently, they work differently, they they look different. They, uh, you know, and I don't know too many clients when they go home have plasmas anyway. Yeah, you know. I mean the wow factor is definitely there on a plasma, yeah, sure. but, yeah, but but like you said, there's difficulties in calibration with those. Um, they're becoming a lot less prevalent. And if yeah. you if you look at the technology, I just read an industry report said that uh, about eighty percent of new television sales are now LED LCD televisions. Um, so it's just plasmas are 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 not really what your typical high end home user is going to be viewing on anymore um and so there's a lot to be said for trying to stay consistent with you know where what the type of technology that most of your users are going to be uh viewing the same content on yeah you know i was you know my my next iteration is just get a 50 or 60 inch samsung put a lut box on yeah. the other side of it and you know there, there you are so prom let's change gears here let's talk about yeah. display calibration and then sure. there may very well be some trends here too yeah uh, from what i'm seeing um, at first, you know, I want to acknowledge how much I've appreciated being able to send my FSI monitor back, have it calibrated mm -hmm. and sent back. Sure. Like, great. Um, and that's, that's uh, one of the most wonderful things about doing business with you guys is that service and support is high on your list of uh, priorities. Yeah. And in particular, calibration. Um, let's talk a little bit about what you do to make sure your displays are calibrated at the factory. I think I saw a web page on your, on your site that was like, <laughs> full of uh of uh very expensive uh yeah. you know, devices well, for calibrating you know we we take it pretty seriously and we've invested heavily um in in the equipment and tools that we need to to do yeah. it well um and so our, our top end devices uh, our reference devices for measurement are um, high-end uh, spectroradiometers from mm -hmm. from photo research is our primary we also have a high-end spectroradiometer from uh from minolta available at the factory um, although we do use photo research as our primary reference um, and then what we do with those is we basically calibrate our colorimeters and the colorimeters we use are also higher end than what most you know typical end yeah. users would use we, we use the Minolta CA310 is mm -hmm. our preferred probe um, and that's not cheap either uh, but we use that uh, we find that they you know they measure very accurately is one thing um, also speed and and that's really one of the reasons that we you know I always tell people 
people that we wouldn't invest, you know, twelve to thirty thousand dollars on any particular probe if we could just use a five hundred dollar probe. And a lot of times, it's not because there's uh, because the five hundred dollar probe just can't do the job. It's because it maybe it can't do the job as well, or it can't do the job right. as quickly. And certainly in a production type environment like this, speed is important. So. Fast measuring speed um, is important. You get that with the higher end probes um, mm. like the Klein and with and, and like the Minolta CA310. Um, those are all very, very fast measuring probes. The Spectros are undeniably some of the most accurate. They're not particularly fast, which is why we use a combination of them. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, you know, we probably go a little overboard, um, but we just like to know that it's done right. And we actually go through several steps. So the first thing is, again, we calibrate our colorimeters um, for oh. every type of display device. So we have offsets um, in right. our probes for you know, the CM240 or the CM320 because they use different types of backlights. Then we calibrate the monitor with the probe. And then what we do is we actually do a quality control report when all that's done mm-hmm. um, with another probe, a third probe. And that's that's also partly to make sure that, hey, how do you know that one of your probes hasn't suddenly drifted or broken? Um, so we use a combination of different spectros and different colorimeters to constantly check and recheck our devices against each other. Uh, so again, maybe probably a little, little overboard, um, but uh, we do use all those tools to uh, ensure accurate calibration. Okay, so here's what I'm curious about. Are you seeing any changes in interest with clients beginning to want to calibrate their own displays and, or create their own LUTs for the displays? Uh, and and if so, what, what what is it you're seeing there? Sure. So we, we've definitely seen a trend where a lot of people are bringing this in-house now. So they're doing the calibration themselves. We've tried to keep up with that trend by opening up our calibration protocols. We used to have a fairly closed system where you could adjust gain and yeah. bias. You could buy an auto alignment kit that would just do, you know, redo your right. luminance, <laughs> um, your uh, white balance. And then we start to open that up. Um, we made our protocols available to third-party suppliers like um, uh, Light Illusion and like SpectraCal. Um, who both now export 3D LUTs in our Mm -hmm. format. We also upgraded our line of monitors so that um, basically everything 17 inch and larger that we sell now comes with 3D LUT support built in. So you can load calibration LUTs to the monitor and that allows people to do it in-house if they want to do it in-house. Now, you can still send it in. We still offer that service for free as often as you like for as long as you own the monitor. It gets done with high-end equipment. But there, there's a lot to be said right. for at least being able to check it yourself or to be able to do the calibration in-house if you're a large enough facility and you have the good probes and you're willing to spend the time and energy on it, can do that in-house. So we have seen that trend where people are getting more and more comfortable doing this themselves. And, you know, there are a lot of fine tools out there that can get the job done for you. And we integrate with a lot of different probes, a lot of different software. And we, again, try to be as open as possible so that we always have people calling us and say, hey, you know, is your LUT format closed off or can we have it? And it's very open. We like, here, here's our LUT format. You can write software. They'll export to our format. So there's the current solutions. We're very open to any possible future solutions. And there's, like I said, there's definitely been a peak in interest there to do this in-house. I would caution that, you know, just make sure that you're the type of person who's patient enough to go through that and figure it out. And I, I know that we, we've had this yeah. discussion before where, you know, you can mess up a little setting and everything doesn't seem to work. And it's, uh, we, we try our best to, to help out with, uh, you know, little um, uh, tutorial videos and clear documentation. But 
It, it can get complex. And one thing I have seen that's kind of nice is that the solutions, both from, again, from people like Light Illusion and from people like Spectracal, um, I've seen that their solutions have gotten simpler, easier to use as well. And yeah. that, that's yeah. been a big plus for us uh, as well, that, that the tools are getting simpler. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would have to agree with you there on that for my my use of them. Um, well, uh, so along that line, this is a, kind of a step back, but yet it's a useful mm-hmm. piece to put in here. So as a question I hear when I'm out and about is, why can't I just calibrate my iMac or, you know, or the attached monitor to my PC or Mac laptop using something like Kalman RGB or whatever the equivalent yeah. is for Light Illusion? Basically, it's a 1D mm-hmm. LUT. Uh, this is always a source of huge debate, mm-hmm. you know, on forums. Um, I'm just curious what you think about that and technically what you see the differences are. And, you know, we let people make their own decision on what they want to do there. But, you know, what do you see as the pros and cons of that? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly calibrating those displays is better than not calibrating them. Right. Uh, but at, at the same time, there are limits in terms of what you can do, um, right. especially when you get into issues of trying to trying to separate brightness and saturation tracking on displays. A lot of times, you need a 3D lot to do that accurately. Right. So that that's certainly part of it. The other thing is just the the complexity of having to piece together different parts to make something work. The nice thing about a broadcast monitor is it's calibrated. It should be easy to calibrate. And all that calibration lives inside the monitor, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It's not OS dependent. And and that can be a real point of, of interest to people, I think, in that you know, it's all well and good that you can calibrate your iMac from your operating system, but now go plug, or not iMac, but your Apple display. Yeah. Uh, but now go plug that Apple display into another computer and you've got to start from scratch. Uh, and and so, and for, and for us too, you know, a lot of our customers are guys who they're doing their own editing, they're doing their own color correction, but they right. also do a lot of their own production work. Uh-huh. And just to be able to bring a monitor on set that they can plug into a camera that's mm-hmm. accurate, then they can go plug it into an editing station and it was going to work. They can move it to a color correction station and the monitor is still going to work there. So having the calibration live on the monitor is important in my opinion for professional right. use the other thing is going to be things like uh, bit depth I mean that's still a big concern on on the um, on the Mac operating systems you yep. know to get this 10 eight bit versus 10 or 8, 8 mm-hmm. versus 10 exactly and then um, you know there's also just the issue of beyond the color reproduction is being able to see your signal formats accurately are you going to see something like 24 PSF accurately? On on a on an iMac on on the screen there or an Apple Cinema mm-hmm. display, mm-hmm. Um, and that's really where a professional monitor comes in handy. It should be able to show you things like field reversals, show you interlaced correctly, show you correct cadence when you're looking at 24p. Mm-hmm. Those are all really important parts of the puzzle, uh, and that's part of what separates you know professional monitors from more of the consumer grade monitors. And so I think it's, it's of course again I'm biased, but I think it's a worthwhile investment. That being said, I'm a big proponent of also calibrating the computer displays so that they're at least in the ballpark. Because uh, something that can be really frustrating is to have your GUI and your broadcast monitor look so wildly different that it's just impossible to not kind of go back and forth and say, well, I kind of like it on the GUI monitor on this shot. You want to avoid that. And so calibrating those is, is a really important piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. I agree. I have um, an iMac here and the uh, Flanders, and then yeah. I have um, a big Epson projector here in the, yeah. in the studio. And uh, it just drive you nuts, you know? Uh, yeah. Because the more you work with color, as 
you would expect, the more you begin to see finer um, differences in yeah. hues. And 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 I've got them all really, really, really close. In fact, most of the time, the client quite can't quite tell the difference. I, I can, but the yeah. client can't. There's usually two schools of thought. One is that, you know, make them different, just leave them wildly different and just focus on one. I'm not able to do that. Out of, out of the corner of my eye, I can still see a little bit of some screen that's a little off. I, yeah. it, I, it kind of psychically bumps me every time I go by it. You know? Absolutely. Well, anyway, let's move on. Last yep. question here, and certainly one of the more fascinating ones is we're moving into 2014, and those who are hearing the show will be in 2014 by then because <laughs> we're that close. Let's talk about that. Where are things going? I mean, there's a huge amount of talk for UHD and 4K. Yep. Um, and then Dolby's coming along with these higher dynamic range displays, or they've been talking about that for a long time. Yeah. Uh, if you had 50 grand to buy one. Yep. And and then you know, and but then there is this fundamental issue that all the new cameras have what 14 plus stops of exactly. light, and we've yeah. got what six that you can see. Yeah. On a monitor. So you know what. And then there's, of course, is OLED versus LCD. Where, where do you see things going? Well, that, that's an interesting question. I wish my crystal ball were a little <laughs> clearer there, because we, we have the same we have the same questions when we're developing new products. You know, yeah. uh, there's there's huge interest in OLED displays, mm-hmm. and and we just recently got into that, and uh, I think that there's there's no denying that. The contrast of an OLED is just, oh, it's unbeatable. Okay. It looks totally. phenomenal. Yeah. Um, that being said, you know, on the consumer side of the equation, especially in brighter environments, OLED can be kind of a hard sell. Yeah. Um, whereas more resolution is something that I personally think is very easy to market. You, you know, you can, you can talk about 4K, you can talk about Ultra HD, and it's something that's easy to quantify. Uh, as soon as you start talking contrast ratio and things like that, yeah. I think a lot of people's eyes glaze over. And honestly, in a brighter room, you may not see the difference. It's only you know us living in our edit suites and our color correction caves that Agreed. can really take you know fully appreciate the uh, the the difference in an OLED screen. So uh, I think that there's there's going to be two. Two trends really is you're you're going to have the higher resolution, and then on the professional side, you're going to see the continued interest in OLED, um, and the ultimate uh, kind of you know uh, I don't know the ultimate technology I think that everybody's going to want in in the long term is 4K OLED. Yeah, uh, for sure. It's phenomenally expensive, and it's honestly from from everything that I'm seeing, all indications are that. It, it's something that's going to remain phenomenally expensive for a very long time. There's just such an uh, installed base of LCD manufacturing plants, mm. and they are going to squeeze every nickel out of that that they can. <laughs> and OLED is just its a big headache for these manufacturers. And um, I, I really think that the resolution aspect of it may ultimately, at least on the consumer side, be the thing that catches on a lot more than um, than the new new technology type than than OLED. So it, it'll be interesting, but but certainly high resolution. Um, the high dynamic range thing, yeah, it, it's very fascinating to me. I I think that there are a lot of kind of market forces at play that are going to keep that from really catching on. So yeah. I, I'm stick my neck out a little bit here. I may be completely proven wrong. Yeah. I but but I don't think that the high dynamic range thing, just purely from the manufacturer standpoint, it's all well and good that a handful of companies can show demos of how this works. Um, 
but what we're faced with is that the current technology, a lot of these white LED backlight LCD TVs, again, that, that make up such a huge percentage of what's being sold today, mm-hmm. simply can't get to the peak luminances needed to do this sort of high high dynamic range right. um, exactly. um, display. So I, I don't know. I think that that, that one's going to be a, har- a harder sell. Mm-hmm. But uh, but high resolution that one I think from a marketing standpoint is is uh, going to be a, a winner. That's kind of my prediction as to how those things are going to play out. I think you might see some 4K uh, reference displays from you guys later in the year. Or? You know, it it for us it's always the same thing. And you know, I've, this is a very overused saying for me, but our general rule is that we we do not sell displays that cost more than the cars that we drive, and <laughs> and, and that's the problem is that. Agreed. 4K resolution and reference monitors today, if you want it to be a half-decent looking screen, it's going to be really expensive. And, yeah. and that's really a big part of the challenge is, you know, I take a close look at the $30,000, $50,000 4K reference displays being manufactured, and they look really good. But they have some issues. Uh, a lot of them, if you move even a little bit off axis, you get tons of color shift. And it's like we're taking... We're taking this huge leap forward in, in things like resolution, but then a lot of the other display characteristics, pixel response time, off-access viewing, um, those things start to suffer again. And it's, it's natural when you, when you start these new production lines. It takes a while to refine the product, to work those things out. And so, uh, I, you know, it's interesting to me, but at the same time, I don't want to be the guy who sells you a $40,000 4K monitor that is kind of behind in every other aspect except for resolution. Um, so it, it's coming. Um, we could do it. We could have done it a year ago if we wanted to. It's just not, we didn't want to do it at that price. So as the panel costs come down, as the panel technology improves, um, we'll certainly do it. FSI is very rarely the first to do something. Um, but when we do it, we do it at a price that we think the bulk of you know professional users can afford we are not the Ferrari of this industry <laughs> where 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 hopefully the BMW well, I'll take Honda it doesn't matter something like that we want to be the reliable the, the reliable go-to solution at a fair price so Brom that's what we all admire about FSI and thank you for holding that vision and making it a reality for us especially the independents all right looking ahead NAB 2014 Got anything special coming out you want us to know about? There'll, there'll definitely be interesting things. I mean, even if we didn't release anything new, um, keep in mind that last NAB, we did not have a 50-inch monitor. We did not have a, a 24.5-inch OLED. We did not have a 16.5-inch OLED. All of that's new as of late this year. So you'll be able to check those things out if you haven't been able to see them yet. We're working on a lot of other things, uh, not just in new products, but enhancements to our current lineup. Something that, that you know most FSI users know is that we're constantly doing new things via firmware, especially these new CM series units that we re- that released last NAB. There's a lot of unlocked potential in those. So without getting into too much of what we're planning on doing, you're going to see some cool things emerge out of the existing products. And certainly there's some new stuff in the works that I can't say much about, but you'll definitely want to stop by the booth at NAB if, if you haven't seen us lately to check out you know, some of the things we released already and some of the things that we will be releasing through the next few months. All right, Brom, thank you so much for your time, your expertise, your insight, and your kind guidance on when and how one should go about buying a reference monitor. I really appreciate it, Tom.